Welcome to the latest episode of Inspiring Futures. Uh, Katie Drecke is my um, guest today. I did a quick check and um, worked out that the last time Katie and I spoke on a podcast, that is, um, was almost three years ago. Uh, and we were just accounting how the cliche goes of time flying, et cetera, et cetera. But um, it is indeed true. Welcome three years later to the podcast. Thank you for having me back three years later. Yeah. <laughs> um, so just quickly remind folks, I know you we don't want to go through like a detailed account of your like career history, but mm -hmm. you're lost you, you were you were lost um working you've been a consultant for a bit now, right? Yeah. How bit yeah. how long was it when I, when you just start had you just started when three years? That's okay. right. Yeah. So actually, we're we're celebrating three years uh, in De in Decemberish timing, um, which kind of blows my mind. It, it went really fast. It was great. Yeah. yeah. It was all because of that conversation we had. Oh yeah, that just was like yeah. the, the the catalyst to your business and, yes. and the calls. The phone never stopped ringing, right? The cornerstone. Yeah. <laughs> so um, before you st started on your own, you where, where were you working? Yeah, I was at Nike for seven years. Yeah, that's right. Prior to that, I spent some time in Australia working at Droga 5 Sydney. Uh, prior to that, I was in the Netherlands for four years. Um, part of that time was at Wyden. Part of that time was down the road at 180. And then also um, a couple years working at Adidas Global. They have a, office, a satellite office in Amsterdam that's a global function. And then before that, I from Seattle. A lot of digital agencies. I grew up in the Seattle area and went to the University of Washington. And um, it was a good. It's a good city to be. You're a husky. A bit, to, yeah. Go dogs. Uh, but it's also a good city to be uh, technologically obsessed because there's a lot of tech um, in that in that sort of mid-sized environment. You can bump up against it all day long if you want. Yeah. So, an obvious question would be. Three major pieces of learning since going out on your own. Oh, three years or a couple. Well, the major, major piece. Yeah, the, the big things. One is I weirdly, I didn't realize how much I knew until it became a case of what do I know that other people need that I can monetize somehow. Uh, and then you're suddenly going, oh, well, I know how to run workshops. I know how to design one. I know how to facilitate one. I know how to create a workshop where there's outputs that lead teams to new work. I know how to do that. I know how to give presentations and make presentations. I can do a 60 minute. I can do a 15. <laughs> I could be on a panel. I can stand on a stage. I can interview other people. I've done I've done research before. I know how to source people. I know how to interview people. I know how to suss out the data. I know the partners to call if it's if I need a a more data driven counterpart to my ethnographic ethnographic approach over here. So you start to go, well, shit, I've worked in all these different agencies. I've worked in digitally focused ones or traditional advertising agencies, worked in these different parts of the world, on these different industries. I've worked in-house. I understand what it means to feel like to be a brand person who needs things and reaches outside the walls to supplement. And all those things wrapped up 
made me realize, made me see my bag of tricks more clearly than I ever saw them before. When you're in a corporate environment, often you're kind of boxed a little bit just for efficiency's sake. Oh, this person does this. And then you start to not flex these other muscles as much and you forget that they're there and you forget how strong they are and you forget that they're, they have value. And you come back out of that on the outside and you're no longer in your box. And I went through a definite sort of rewilding period, particularly in the first year <clears throat> where I allowed myself to be really experimental and conceive of all different types of projects and <clears throat> styles of working. And I realized, oh my gosh, there's, I've got way more in my bag of tricks than I realized. So that was a big, that was a big learning of like, you can get blind spots even about yourself um, that you need to get right with when you go out on business to your yeah. own. No, I think that's really interesting. And I think, you know, from the agency <laughs> strategy's perspective, it's probably their constraints is they over time they build up these skills, but there's a sort of a narrowing either as they go into management mm. and other people to do this stuff or just the time constraints, bandwidth constraints mean that they do, you know, more scrambling. Yeah. Yeah. And I think yeah. what you're sort of saying is, you know, press the pause button. Take a bit of time for reflection and look back at actually the sort of things you really do and maybe actually even the things you actually enjoy doing you know yeah you know, yeah maybe i don't love yeah. through an excel spreadsheet of data i maybe i can do it maybe yeah. i don't love it. and maybe now i'm in a position that i could decide whether i do want to do that or not totally you have a chance to edit going forward if you, that's what makes you happy um there were things that I kind of knew how to do, but I wanted to obtain a mastery in. And so I figured out ways that I could get access to that work so I could build those muscles. Like what? Uh, more around sort of like the future's work and projections. Um, oh, yeah. I often did some of that stuff more as like, almost like a side hustle or just a personal project or like things that I really, it's just, um, it's just my brain goes there. But it's hard. You have an affinity for. I just I have a natural affinity. Yeah, and when you work inside of a corporate environment, everyone's focused on next week and next quarter, and so there wasn't a whole lot of opportunity to always pull that card. But when I saw an opportunity to pull it, I pulled it as rapidly and enthusiastically as I possibly could. And so now that I'm out on my own, I've been seeking out how can I make a project around that? How can I start kind of building a little repertoire and a little name around that? Um, I was able to uh, help another agency win a pitch by saying, hey, how about let's make in your pitch that phase zero is actually a bit of a cathedral building exercise that we'll take the executive team through where we get them to think 100 years in advance, you know, 50 years in advance. What is the legacy that we're leaving for their industry and for their brand that people will enjoy after they leave and they'll remember their name or they'll remember that 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 time when this particular leadership team was here and made a ton of impact. I think that could be really delicious for an executive team that doesn't normally get to think that way. And it would also give you really good feeder material for when you go into your brand positioning and their next brand campaign, which is what you're really pitching for. It'll make you different. And so the woman was like, I like that. So she slid me in as a, like a phase zero into their scope and we won the pitch because of it. And then I got to go and run this pitch with the Chicago Bulls actually. Like it was really rad. So I, I had an inkling that I could turn something that I really loved into an opportunity to make money doing something that really winds me up. And I do naturally anyway, but I, I didn't have any practical experience 
doing it. And so I just kind of have been wiggling my way around trying to figure out what's the right story. How do I attach it to other things? And how do I find also the right clients who are looking for that kind of work? Yeah, um, I think after, after COVID, I think a lot of people were really contracted and they were thinking really short term, but I'm starting to get the sense, especially with all of the summer that we had and people realizing we got to think longer and more extended time periods and get smart about how we're going to navigate the next decades um, as well as the next quarters. Um, and I'm hoping there'll be more clients interested in engaging in that work coming forward. Yeah. <clears throat> it, was, it was really interesting because I've always, um, it's always been a bit, it's always like had a little bit of a sort of crystal ball, mystical kind of angle to it. You know what I mean? It's sort of, uh, it's sort of, um, I don't know. I, I don't know. I mean, what's kind of why I like it? Because mm. it isn't, it is, you know, is someone going to knock on your door in 50 years' time and say you were wrong? <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's kind of cool. But I got really super into this whole thing, uh, you know, around the global business network. You know, I don't know if you know about GDN. Well, Global yeah. Business, Chris Riley used to be super into it. Um, I think he was even a member of it. Um, it's, I don't know if it's even around anymore, but it was basically, they had a story, their origin story was they was the guys who were in the forecasting group at Shell. Oh. So we go back to the 70s, which is very kind of, relevant for today and they actually their claim to fame is they predicted the oil crisis and they were the only yeah. oil company to do it and they did it because of this foresight team yeah. and then the flight team went off on their own and they formed gdn um and i think a couple of things that were super interesting about gdn one was that they were called upon by spielberg to uh, create a vision for the future of advertising for um minority report Mm -hmm. um, but their methodology was really very interesting. They had a sort of Rolodex of super interesting people. Mm -hmm. And they tapped into these folks and, you know, it would be Brian Eno and, you know, several other people talking about the future of culture and entertainment. And cool. that was... That's cool. Yeah. It was I, guess like I hadn't heard of them before. Yeah, it's a really interesting quote. Um, but yeah, it's, so now, I think... What I'm hearing from folks who are working in this space a little bit is this sort of a VUCA world problem, right? That, you know, this, this vulnerability, this very fragile, negative challenge of when you actually look to the future. We've, we're used to, the future's great when you're in a sort of Jetsons world where everything's sort of growing and technology's advancing and and people are becoming wealthier and mm -hmm. all boats are rising. But when the opposite is true, it's sort of a harder story to get people mm -hmm. around. We've got a lot of um, news fatigue. Mm -hmm. uh, sort of, I think it was a COVID thing. That they just, people just sort of switched off. Like, I just don't want to hear any more mm -hmm. bad news. Mm -hmm. So it's a very interesting time to be talking about the future when the future has challenges, right? Yes. And there's some, there's, I've been thinking about that a lot, actually. And I've been consulting with 
podcasts mostly because I like to listen to podcasts when I walk and searching for other people that are wrestling with that same question about mostly about I want to be a part of the work. I want to be a part of the solution of what's coming. I don't want to sit in the corner and rock back and forth and wring my hands about it. It's, it is going to be hard. There are going to be challenges and conflict and turbulence, but it doesn't mean that we can't adapt and it doesn't mean that we can't evolve. And it doesn't mean that there's, um, it's going to be all gloom and doom. I think there's opportunities for a lot of things that we recognize as being kind of challenged and broken in our various systems that are going to get under the microscope. You know, there's going to be um, real great chances. And there's also been some good signals that, you know, particularly when you think about climate, there it's not going to be easy, but there are, have been some positive surprises. You know, the cost of um, solar and wind coming down as rapidly as it has in terms of the technology, the, the speed at which um, battery uh, technologies has raced forward. Um, all were things that people had predicted taking a lot longer. Now, the flip side of that is some of the negatives that are happening in the environment, um, the weather, and then the impacts that are understood, not understood, <laughs> seen or unforeseen, or, or more importantly, the ones that are cascading that actually have exponential outcomes that we didn't see. Now, that's the thing that kind of worries me a little bit is we could get in some of these feedback loops that will make the problem we're working with more dynamic, larger, and more complex, faster than our technology can race to meet the challenge. But without knowing, you know, nobody has the crystal ball for this one. We are, we have crossed over into something that is not in the historical record. And um, so that we are, we are writing the script together with the planet at the moment. So it puts pressure on all these different dynamics, and it's a lot to try to hold in your head. I'm sure you've been hearing about the polycrises language that's out there. Just, just being real with ourselves that it's okay if you're feeling overwhelmed and kind of whacked out about it. There is a lot, actually. It is, it is actually a lot. And we, and if you weren't at all affected, you know, emotionally or spiritually or any other way, um, it would mean that you really weren't paying attention, and you probably would mean that you were actively hiding <laughs> from from information and knowledge and participation. So I think it's normal for the tension to be there. Um, I have my days where I feel really bummed out about it. I'm I'm a nature lover and I spend a ton of time outside and sometimes it makes me want to weep just thinking that I'm going to watch for the rest of my life the deterioration of the natural world. It's not going to be as vibrant as it is today and it will never be in my lifetime as vibrant as it was when I was a child. And that makes me really sad. Um, at the same time, it's important for me to enjoy it as much as I can while I can, because that's also true. It's still here. It's still green and beautiful. I'm looking out the window right now at my Portland rain and my green trees. So it's here. Enjoy it. And also I have children. So it's like arming them with the knowledge of what is happening, that it's okay for it to let you let it bother you. It should probably bother all of us. But also there's a lot of great work to be done. Um, I've been listening a lot to Ezra Klein's podcast specifically about um, the IRA Act, you know, um, it's one year in what is working, what has traction, what doesn't have traction. What are the new, my son's in high school, you know, what are the new sort of like, even what are the new blue collar jobs that are going to come out of this? People who know how to program solar, people who know how to weld certain things, people who know how to work with certain sort of technologies. Um, 
I'm tr- I'm doing all I can to educate myself in a way that I feel like strategists are supposed to feel in these situations, which is I'm observing something taking place and I can start to see a navigational path through it. And for me, that's often what strategy looks like, even on a, on a small brief level. I've got this question. I've got this challenge. I've got this need. There's this context that this need, this challenge, this question sits within. I've got some competitive forces that are predictable or unpredictable. Um, I've got a way of approaching the world. That's my brand. That's my that's my point of view. That's my ethos. That's my philosophy. And now I need to plot a course <laughs> to get from where I am to where I prefer to be to start momentum behind something I believe in, to revisit something that we let die and we need to revitalize, whatever the case might be. And so I kind of look at this moment in the same way. It's really dynamic. There's a lot going on. How do I, how do I chart my course? How do I make that course intentional, but also resilient in, this, in the sense that there could be a new news cycle next year and I'm going to need to pivot. You know, I'm going to have to do something different or say something different or um, move my money in a different way or not travel, travel, um, change my diet, whatever. (laughs) Like there's only so much consumers can do, but like also just, I'm I'm trying to bring this work into a lot of my client work too. Um, Every, every client I have, I, it was kind of a test, like on every brief, can I also conceive of a silent ask that may or may not actually be on the page, which is how do we remain relevant and frankly how do we remain in business (laughs) like 10 years from now 20 years from now so that we're not driving headlong into a cul-de-sac and door closure yeah i I think i think there's so much to i i don't like the word unpack it just sort of but it it keeps coming up and it is yeah anyway but what you said a lot in the last couple of minutes and my takeaway from that is and thinking strategy with a big capital app, it's not mm. because if you think of the marketing domain, it's sort of it's sort of been diminished down to communication. You know, it was originally the four P's, and that was a lot, and now it's just promotion. And you know, we, I'm sure you're so familiar with like in the siloization of organizations where th- these problems just require cross-functional teams to really like tackle, they require marketing from escaping out of the silo. I was fortunate enough to work on a project last year for a client to actually really see this at a Fortune 500 company really up close and personal. And to see actually how what you're saying is sort of really fascinating because it wasn't, what the discipline you're sort of talking about wasn't present in the room. What we sort of had was sort of two groups. We had what I would call the um, sort of um, compliance folks. So the compliance folks are, what do we legally need to do to uh, to to appease the regulators, to appease stakeholders? Um, and then we have the marketing folks, which are who are kind of saying, what can we find? that's really interesting to talk about. And neither of those sort of seems right, you know, as you talk about the pathway and a, and a future orientation, but where's the future North Star? It's not about, it. maybe it is about your brand, it is about your brand purpose or whatever you want to call it, 
you've got to contextualize that within the environment you're talking about, as in the future of the world. Mm -hmm. You're not contextualizing it within that. You're sort of ostrich-like, right? You're sort of your yeah. head stand. Yeah. So the, the first thing you've got to do is, is the, is the algorithm, the very simple algorithm is, what does your brand purpose mean in a future that looks like this? Yeah. Which is a kind of a very interesting starting point for a discussion, right? And if you can't, and if you say, well, we mean this, but the, but the very practical interpretation of where we're going to be 10 years from now paints a, a stage in which your brand is incredibly discordant for some reason. Like, it's, it's a pretty good idea to know that earlier than later and start plotting your evolution, you know. Brands can behave just like caterpillars. That's okay. You know, you can you can go in the chrysalis and come out something that flies, even if you start off as something that walks or crawls. Yeah. It's possible. And we've seen brands do this before. Oftentimes they're lauded for being innovative and for kind of escaping death. <laughs> um, but it's also interesting if you see the future coming with clear enough visibility and bravery that you you go into that chrysalis and uh, experience knowingly intentionally and early um as opposed to using it as a last ditch effort to avoid extinction um because the you know people are not idiots like there's the internet there's so much information like it's co consumers are like incredibly savvy people who demand and you know deserve um clear intelligent communication and even collaboration and for a brand to say everything's fine everything's fine everything's fine oh shit now we're this <laughs> like that's not a very inspiring position to take but if you're like everything's fine oh wait everything's not fine oh wait do we have a role to play what is our role to play let's begin now let's let's get other people to go into it with us I mean that is just a that is such a much better story. <laughs> and yeah, it's... and just, I think that's I think that's so that that's so interesting. It's sort of almost it's um it's like the beta. They really learn that from tech, right? Always being in beta. And I always I always point to the Patagonia. There was a Patagonia example, and I again I hate using Patagonia because it seems to be the only example. But I do like the voice of we haven't solved it but we're working on it. Mm -hmm. And we always think in binary, you're either doing X or Y, and you've got to be definitive, and, and you've got to be um, very clear, and you've got to be on a on a path. And going back to the GBM point, which I think is really, which is sort of goes back to what you're trying to do, the, 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 real, the real breakthrough of what the guys did at Shell was what they called scenario planning. Mm -hmm. So instead of saying there was just one feature, you actually have a they actually have a process. And actually, I did a podcast with one of the guys. Oh, cool! Of this group, um, part of TBN, and there's a methodology for for scenario planning. So you don't have one feature; you have many features. Yeah, and, and you monitor your monitor how things are progressing. Um, and you, you're constantly vigilant. 
uh, to see which scenario is the most likely one to play out. So I, I love think, that. Yeah, I think that's. Um, that feels very natural. That I mean, that feels very natural to me anyway. And I, it also feels like very logical. And it's also reminds organizations of all kinds how much agency they actually have. You can nudge the future into the direction that you want it to go. You can be the author of your own narrative. You need to make sure that it's true, <laughs> this narrative. It's not that you make one thing and say it's something else. And, you know, like there needs to be reality checks. Um, but you can actually create in many ways the future that you want. There are, there are, there are drivers, there are forces in the world that are non-negotiables. We all die. <laughs> We're all here on this planet. There are limitations to the planet's ecosystem, and there will be changes that will be thrust upon us. We can't really negotiate with a lot of those things. But within that context, I think people sometimes forget how much agency they really do have. And um, I was actually fiddling around with that, that really fun matrix about like the known knowns all the way to the unknown unknowns. <laughs> And I think a lot of times people think about those unknown unknowns as a scary box in the matrix. There's danger there. That's where I'm going to get sucker punched. I'm nervous about what I don't even know to ask about. But I often get excited about that box because the unknown unknowns are also those crazy opportunities that you haven't, for whatever reason, been able to see. Um, and it could be because we don't understand our customer well enough. We don't understand our own product well enough. We, we haven't allowed our peripheral vision, a wide enough lens to operate in. So we can see, we haven't looked diagonally yet, you know, so there's these unknown white spaces, um, for a brand that really wants to, or an organization of any kind, not just a brand, but anybody who, who wants to be a part of this future and be a part of shaping it, saving it, making it um, joyful, a joyful adaptation as opposed to um, a mental sort of anguished sort of uh, retreat in a, in a way, um, can get into that unknown unknowns box and really figure out some incredibly distinctive, definitive, uh, like stake in the ground kind of things. Um, so anyway, I... I think what you said earlier, I, I was actually the people who don't explore that are the ones that suffer. If you're Blockbuster or Kodak or Nokia and you don't go visit the unknown, then you get what happens to them, you know? Yeah. Because they see the world in sort of a narrow, it, it's just it's just a classic. Everything goes through this sort of classic life cycle, doesn't it? You know, they start off. One starts off as a disruptor. Um, but watching this, uh, have you heard of the All In podcast? No. It's a bunch of sort of. Uh, I would say a bunch of sort of like um, tech valley kind of folk. Uh -huh. um, but uh, they're, they're quite sort of punchy, interesting, um, and they had a conference um a month ago in LA 
because they bought some of the people they had on the podcast and they bought, you know, a, a crowd. They're very successful with podcasts. And Bill Gurley, who's the sort of uh, the, the VC of Silicon Valley, you know, he's the guy who, uh, you know, brought Uber into the world and a bunch of other things. Um, oh. Gave this incredible talk, um, really about it's called it's about regulatory capture, and, and it and it sounds really boring and dry, but he actually had these fascinating examples mm. of how incumbents in the U.S. have used regulation just to stifle competition. Yes. The example yes. Of, uh, of, this, of these testing kits, you know, which in the UK cost less than a buck a pot, but in the US somehow cost seven bucks, six X. Yeah. Some incumbents have got in to the regulatory system and sort of controlled it. So, I thought it was really fascinating, just that very dry subject, but very important, you know, um, that, you know, if we want to change the future, and when you particularly look at the energy lobby, you know, there's people who have a vested interest in maintaining the status quo. Yes. You know, I think you raise a really interesting point. A lot of the coolest opportunities to really make meaningful impact. Um, And this could be anywhere from just like, just being on the right side of history in any number of ways, doesn't have to be about the environment, Um, is kind of those, those sort of like sexy fundamentals or like those hidden gray zones that people think are boring or uninteresting or it, you know, we don't need to dwell on this kind of things, but actually you get in there. <laughs> it's kind of the fun part of being a geeky strategist person is like you get access to reams of all kinds of information and you kind of wiggle your way through it all. And you're like, what's this? Like, there seems to be a really weird traffic jam on this thing. Can someone explain it to me? You got to get deeper into it and deeper into it. And you realize this, this one decision-making tool or this one point in the process or this one word we've always used it's just fallen out of lingua franca. We need, if we replace this word, it could probably crack open a whole new mind space for our relationship to people and culture. Like there's any number of ways in which when you look at the system of pieces, you can find a node that's not firing or you can find a muscle that's gone dormant or you can find blockers in, um, and you can shine a light on some of the bad actors. Like I'm sure you've seen some of the news recently about Shell and their PR uh search and um havas and people leaving and like like nobody wants to work on fossil fuel anymore we know what you we know the nasty game you guys are playing and nobody wants to play that game with you anymore no matter how much money you have and there's been a little bit of naming and shaming going on but i i think even in in a in a just a simple brief when you can see where the bad actors are, you can see where the, the, you know, the light bulb that needs to be changed just so we can make the, the whole system a bit brighter. Um, they can often be something that people would be like, oh, well, I don't want to put that on my resume. And I'd be like, put it on mine. Like that's, that's a crazy, wicked, like hack that you just figured out. Like that's, that's some of the really fun 
potentially unsexy, unawardable magic, but like super, super rewarding and cool. Um, I think one of our, it made me think about probably one of our problems, you know, hmm. I love your idea of the, of the doctor's diagnosis of like the neurons that are firing and just looking at this whole thing as of an organism, really. Yeah. And just uh, that was really cool as a metaphor or analogy. I never know which, which is which. I was also talking about those sort of detective things on the wall with the pieces of string, you know, like, you know, who's linked to who and how does it, it all work? I, I think our fundamental problem in advertising is that we've approached these problems as opportunities to win awards. Mm. A little bit. It's been sort yeah. of, you know, this is the sexy thing that people are going to But guys, you did it for three weeks. You did it in Bolivia. and and. You talk to 10, and 10 people were impacted. This thing needs to go on for 25 years and reach 10 million people. Yeah. And the frustration yeah. I have with like the, the gun, the, the anti-gun stuff, you know, it's it, great. It's really provocative. It never has enough media dollars. You know, the award should go to, the, to someone who goes to every single broadcast in the U.S. and forces them to hand over $150 million of free ad space. So they oh, can some of the stuff, and people might see it, and it might make yeah. a difference. That would be a killer media hack, actually, for a media agency if they were able to figure out how to basically load balance the channels in a way that PSA messages were never underfunded. Yeah, they never went starving. You know, and then where's the award for that? I mean, I guess to your point, like, I feel like the incentives in, in particularly the advertising industry, but maybe just in general, a lot of the incentives that creative people are working against are counterproductive to what we are actually saying we're trying to do. If we're trying to infuse more magic into the world and more creativity into uh, business, politics, mm -hmm. culture, um, is an award and a, you know an award on a glitzy stage really the right answer? Like, what do we want to? How do we want to incentivize people? Um, what is what are those badges of honor really about? I, I'm starting to get a sense, at least. I mean, I have never been to Cannes, and I really have no aspiration to go to Cannes. But I've also noticed more sort of critical chatter around can over the last maybe three to five years a bit of the grandiosity the money flowing the alcohol the um the ids and the stages and whatnot you know i think people are kind of a little they've lost their taste for it a little bit even if it's fun you know it's it still doesn't feel quite right and potentially that's a really fun brief to the award organizations out there to say what's a better incentive you know like better than playing to sort of like the hedonistic side of all of us which is essentially what these award programs are doing right now what about like the cyclical learning part and the everybody in part and the all of us putting our shoulder against a big boulder part and you know the impact that we're actually making in a positive way beyond the PNL. Yes, the PNL is important. That's how we all make our money and pay our bills. But we're supposed to be the creative industry. Like <laughs> this doesn't feel very creative. It feels kind of na navel gazing a lot, and um, and like we're not really punching 
we're not really punching the jugular <laughs> in terms of like the creative output either. That's I just, I just remember so many things for, even from my youth and from my early days in the advertising world where creative would kind of knock your socks off. Um, I feel like it's been a while. I yeah. don't know. Yeah, and I think that that's sort of like, you know, I, I mean, to sort of work out the puzzle here, I, I, I think that's sort of been the problem. So people have sort of worked out, how do I get attention for myself? And, okay, so the world is rewarding these types of things, so I need to be working on these types of things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a short-term campaign to increase the sales of Sprite over the summer is a, is a fine thing for marketing to do. That's good mm-hmm. to do. Our job. Right, but it doesn't work in the context of, um, you know, environmental sustainability. So it's not a short-term thing. Mm-hmm. So that still feels really weird. So, you know, if you, were w, if you were the CEO of WPP, maybe the thing you should be doing is donating your time to NGOs. On mm-hmm. a long, not going and saying, we're going to do the next campaign for the World Wildlife Fund. No, it's, we're going to embed, we're going to give you 50,000 hours of creative time a year. Mm-hmm. however you want. Yeah. If, if, the, it, only, if the only yeah. bullet is a campaign, yeah. that's really limiting. That's 100%. Creative uh, abilities of the creative, and it's limiting to what's actually required. Yeah. It's interesting. It's actually the same advice that ad agencies and creative agencies often give to their clients, which is to say, what are your greatest assets and what are your biggest stages and how can you offer them on behalf of X, either um, an underserved community or on behalf of the planet or on behalf of some other thing, um, a, a philosophy or a, or a belief. Um, if, if you're a mucky muck in, in the advertising world and you're entrenched and embedded in the network of the you know the big holding companies and whatnot think about the power and influence of holding companies holding hands on something what would that be holy crap like they, <laughs> there could be incredible ways that they could hack their own system for the benefit of something really meaningful and give advertising not only a job to be done inside of a corporate machine, which is product makes product, marketing, markets it to the consumer. Okay, that's a job to be done there. But what's the higher order purpose of advertising and creative thinking in the world? If we're if we're some of the best communicators and the most influential storytellers and the most sideways and diagonal thinkers, can we just apply this to ourselves for a moment and take some of our own medicine and take some of the own advice that we often give our clients? And apply it to not just WPP or some other large holding company, but to the realm, you know, the universe of, of advertising. And I don't know. I've never operated at that altitude. I don't know how hard it is for those people to come together and align on a shared vision. Maybe it's not possible. I, I would think that it would be quite possible, frankly. Um, maybe all they just need to do is try. Um, 
But that's certainly a much more like inspiring idea of, do I want to go work in advertising so I can sell some more stuff? Or do I want to work in ad- into advertising because advertising makes this happen in the world at- while it sells some stuff for its client? I was part of the all in uh, summit I was talking about, there was um, another presentation from uh, a gentleman called Mr. Beast. Oh, yeah. I have teenagers in my house. Yeah, I know Mr. Beast. <laughs> He's an absolutely fascinating guy, and he is so like buttoned up. It's 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 insane. I mean, you know, the whole idea of like the crazy YouTube content creator is not his style. He is like he's got a vision for his brand. He even talks about brands, and he basically spent a decade understanding what it takes to make a successful viral video. And every video he makes. He plows all the advertising revenue back into the production. We've got to the point where he's got so big. His 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 budget a two and a half million. There are agencies all over the United States that would love a two and a half million dollar budget for a for an ad. He has a two and a half million budget dollar budget. He started his whole thing is it's basically about bringing happiness to people. Yeah. You know? Yeah. He gives a lot of money. He makes really entertaining content. But he also has a philanthropy division. Wow. So all the philanthropy ideas he has, he goes and makes films of, he puts them on the web, YouTube writes him a check, and the checks go straight to the to the charity. Amazing. So, you know, he's got a flywheel of like positivity basically. He's there. Yeah. And um, you know, that's one twenty eight year old guy. Okay, he spent a decade working it out but um it does surprise me that given the scale of advertising mm-hmm. how it struggles to make an impact mm-hmm. beyond that space yeah the, the one the thing that surprised me most of all is like one of the things that just there's this thing called the Museum of Ice Cream. I don't know if you heard of it. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So this thing, yeah, it, it, it suffered a, a lot because of COVID, because it's an experience. But this thing, you know, it's going to be a global brand. And there's going to be museums of ice creams everywhere because moms want to take kids to do something that's fun and cool. But mm-hmm. what is this thing? It's really brilliant design. It's somebody who understands trends and futures to say actually experiences of the thing. Mm-hmm. All the capabilities, pretty much, that exist within inside of an ad, ad agency. Yeah. But no, no one is building, no one's building a business. Now everyone's looking at liquid death and going, well, they're kind of like an ad agency, but they've got a product. Mm-hmm. And they're scratching their heads and going like, well, how do I get to that? Mm-hmm. So I think, I think the conversation is there. You think like, they, there seems to be some missing pieces. Maybe part of that is willpower. Part of that is maybe it's a generational thing. Maybe it takes it's the next generation is 26-year-olds who right, really get it and like, they want to be the Mr. Beast. So maybe the smart and white agencies say, we'll help fund you do that. Well, I mean, there is, there is a lot of interesting questions flying around. I mean, if the, if creator, the creator economy, the creator community... And all they're able to do is actually performing 
better than what the internal advertising studio can do faster, more natively. Well, that, I mean, then the advertising agency world needs to ask itself, what do we have that is not available anywhere else? And if, and or what do we need to invent? Or how do we need to leapfrog? Or what is it that creators can do really well, but it's very narrow and we, and we can go broad. And there's, there's probably dozens of those similar situations where the world around the advertising realm has evolved so quickly and put so many different challenges on so many different dimensions of the business, including the clients themselves who are writing the briefs and asking for the work. They're asking for really different stuff. I remember one of the most incredible briefs I got a chance to write while I was at Nike was for the membership um, division. And I couldn't find an agency to take it uh, because there wasn't an agency that was that had a mastery in what the member journey would look like. Because a member journey through a brand like Nike is on the mobile phone, it's in the retail store, it's on Nike.com, it's watching elite athletes on TV, like it's it's all over the place. It's in social media, it's everywhere. And so we needed to conceive of like this new brand expression for the membership program and then take account for all of these different touch points. Even inside of Nike, all those different divisions were siloed away from each other at the time. So it was hard for me to even get all of my cross-functional people into a room and to see the work as something they were doing together on behalf of the member. Um, so to find an agency externally was really rough. And then in the end, we went with a really a strong design agency that had just enough digital knowledge and just enough retail knowledge to kind of stretch a little bit into some of these other places. And then we kind of cobbled together a couple other small agencies to kind of fill in the gap. But I was really, I was actually kind of surprised and demoralized that I, as I went out there trying to find like my sharpest weapon and my best partner for this great brief, I couldn't find one. I remember, uh, I remember meeting somebody who started the kids club at Nike, the kids need to call it. Yeah. Which was really super cool, wasn't it? It was like a membership program and um, kids got male sneakers every month or something. And he mm -hmm. was just how hard that was internally yeah. to the point that I think ultimately closed it down. But yeah, what you're talking about is, you know, it's really, it's fundamental everything we said. It's like from this transactional mindset to a relationship mindset. Yep. Yeah. And it's also about that, the brand actually like thinking about it as a living, breathing organism. I mean, you mentioned earlier, like I was using all these words about like diagnosis and neurons and it's, I keep coming back to those analogies kind of naturally. I'm realizing I spoke with someone about a week ago and he was like, you keep talking about the nervous system of the brand and the blood system of the brand and how you're going to like infect the nervous system with a new brand platform so that every touch in the body of the brand is now firing in synchronicity. And, you know, the big toe is, is, is just as informed as the eyeball and the ear and um, kind of diagnosing that on the regular, making sure it's all circulating. And he's like, you should do some writing on that. And of course I haven't, but it's funny that I, I'm using a lot of the same analogies with you, even on this call. Like it does, it does feel like a natural way to just say, you know, think of the brand not as a logo mark, but as an organism. 
it has a it has a body we don't know the shape of it and we don't know the the purpose of it but like it has a heart there's a spiritual center it has cycles different parts of the ecosystem change over at different points just like ours do like our fingernails are growing our hair is growing and falling out like there's th- things that change um and there's also parts that don't change all that much and um i think there's been a lot of debate in the brand strategy world about uh you know brand consistency brand bible like creating these really fixed objects for consistency sake which you need in order to be recognized around the world um have people feel the same feeling um no matter where they meet you but also a need almost a confounding need to be very dynamic and to be hyper local and to be really relevant and to be native to different channels and to be of the moment and this sort of like living body sort of thing um this sort of like ecosystem of pieces and parts some of which have fast metabolisms some of which have slow metabolisms is one way i think my brain is trying to make sense of that and get them to work in together in synchronicity in some way that some parts of the system move slowly those are probably those more static objects that create consistency um those those would apply to everything from the brand platform and the pillars and the, the even senior leadership you know you don't want to have to be churning through senior leadership it's probably hiring practices all these things can subscribe to that slow metabolism at certain points and then social media like if it's something happened in the world and you're supposed to go quiet and out of respect well that should shut down you know and then you're going to have to read a new signal in culture to be like oh now it's time and there's this meme and we're going to surf that wave and we're going to play um here's where we take our customers feedback and we apply it here's where we don't um we're going to go quiet so that we can have a big boom so so you can just imagine like it's it's really like it's sometimes we talk about like soundboards and like there's a mixer behind a board but actually it's even more complicated than that it's like it's like a living entity well mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's sort of then what happens when when it overlaps into our world so when you've got this brand organism mm. and suddenly it's like part of our lives and when it you know and when you're running a marathon and you know for 90 minutes every day your nike thing is your sort of coach or your partner and it's so dynamic it knows what you did yesterday mm. you know what i mean so then so i think i think that's a really interesting thing with technology is now um we have these platforms and these platforms um you know maybe they're um permanently part of our lives like banking because just we can't exist without or maybe we ebb and flow into them um, mm-hmm. i was reading a lot on linkedin interestingly about sort of, sort of caregiving and sort of age generation our parents etc and how um very few companies are equipped with the emotional capability of of dealing with it they have a bunch of performance marketers who are you know yeah. self-services and there's no emotional sensitivity i think you have just hit a really important nerve <laughs> but like you've like really landed on something that resonates with me it is an emotional and empathetic uh suite of capabilities 
that don't often weirdly rarely exist in in high levels in a tech company but even in like classic um corporate environments where there is a lot of rigor around the retail aspect or there's a lot of rigor around the pnl and the, and the repetition and routine for efficiency and you know stock market output um the empathy muscle is weak and I think we're just going into a period where no one, regardless of who you are, can afford to not have a very strong empathetic IQ. And where else does that reach people more more, and in a most pure way than through the product and product experience layer? So this, you know, this product is made for you. It's people making things for other people. And you can feel that. And then like your the Nike example, although there's a lot of examples I could rattle off, but like the Nike example, I'm training for a marathon. I have brought, I have bought the, the right level of innovation for my foot, for who I am and my sport goals. And sitting around that product is a suite of experiences that understand I'm on a journey and they're with me on that journey. Diego Zambrano, I don't know if you know him. He used to work at uh, We Co. He has... Um, an app that he's a, a platform that he's recently created. The app is beautiful. It's called cream or creme, depending upon where you live in the world, but it's about another passion point. It's around food. It's stunning. If you care about food and you want to, you want to cook it and you think about it a lot, that's the Nike um, run club equivalent for your kitchen. If you're someone that is like a beginner investor or a beginner you know, someone young in your 20s, maybe you're in high school and you're learning how to manage your money. Like there's a bunch of different apps out there that are training. You got to think about what you're going to want to do five years from now, which most high school and college age kids are not so sure what's going to happen five years from now. But when you envision that you'd like to have a kitty that you could play with to take a trip, to to buy something special, to just not live paycheck to paycheck. Like they get excited about that. It's just, they don't have natural visibility to it the way their brain works. So these tools step in and they go on that journey to financial fitness with them, or even people who are passionate about fashion. Yeah. Uh, I, I love fashion. I'm also in love with the planet. I don't want to buy fashion all the time, but I love to engage in fashion all of the time. So you've seen some retailers introduce things like closets where you can collect clothes and you can mix mix and match and you can make looks without ever buying the thing and, and, and kind of participating in the potentially the extractive part of the company but you're you're really thinking you're engaging in fashion and you're playing with their kid parts oh, on it doesn't it again it's a build a relationship build through it's a tool a relationship. yeah and I, I, yeah. I, and I was um i was talking to some folks the other day about um well of course the the, the problem we've all got into is that this stuff is usually quite expensive to make and to mm. do and now if ai has come along mm. so what I'm really interested in is is what's going to happen. So, I mean, I use the example a few times with people. Like when I worked on Mini, there was a sort of and then it was a, people were enamored with technology inside the company, inside BMW, and suddenly they sort of bought a bunch of software and it suddenly got into the car, you know, and it was the navigator stuff and all this. Mm-hmm. And suddenly, before we knew it, our cars were just giant computers on four wheels. Mm-hmm. But the brand lost. It, it was like everyone had the same thing yeah yeah matter. but i think what's going to be really interesting and i think a huge amount of work is going to need to be done is 
when these AI, the AI will be the interface for brands. Mm. You know, get and look at, to go and look at your closet and to go and ask your fashion brand about what's in your closet and what's happening today. You will use, probably use an AI interface somehow. Mm. How those AI interfaces represent the brand is going to be absolutely fascinating because it's going to, you don't want an off the shelf thing that looks like everyone else's. Ellen Fisher's saying that you don't want to look like the gap. You know, you're going to, so I think what's going to happen is people are going to go back and say, we need to train our AI. And we went back and looked at all the brand documentation mm-hmm. and it's crap. It's <laughs> there's nothing there. There's no there there. It's all a bunch of bullshit words that everyone's using for the personality. And we need something more. So I think, I think there's going to be a big, if this, stuff takes off in a way it will, it likely will, mm. be a huge amount of work to be done to build out this real depth of personality. If you are interacting with, you know, the, the, the amount of time, like Google, we interact with so, so often, you know, it's a ridiculous, that's why it's the world, you know, one of the world's most powerful brands. But we are going to be interacting in this way with so many of the brands and the people who love those brands, those interactions are just going to exponentially increase. I think also, go ahead, go ahead, sorry. The expectation therefore for almost like a friend relationship, Hmm. I think will be very interesting to see. I think it will also reveal um, the brands that have or don't have that empathetic muscle. Yeah. And and it will also reveal the brands that took the time and intentionality to address the bias in the AI world that exists. Like it, when you use a piece of code that's been created, you you are absorbing the bias of the coder. And at the moment we know that the number of engineers that are working in this space are mostly male, they're mostly white. Hopefully over time that shifts and changes. Everyone's interested in this space. Everyone's kind of getting skilled up at the same time. And if we're paying attention collectively as a society to this, it shouldn't get um, unbalanced. But I think to your point, if you're trying to create a synthetic entity that is interacting with your customers, you can't really afford to just pop something off the shelf and plug it in you need to be removing as much of the bias as possible, the negative biases, and then, and then keeping kind of those positive biases of like lots, you know, crazy levels of hospitality and customer service, crazy levels of passion for the same thing that your customers have passion about, um, patience and um, enthusiasm and optimism and like uh, things that brands love to roll, roll out and roll over their customers so that they can create relationships and, ties that last but um i'm i'm skittish with ai a little bit i feel like i mean i heard some some quote you probably heard the same thing that coming out of can a lot of really you know brand executives were getting excited about it we're starting to really lean in pretty hot and heavy and i think it was maybe even gary v who said something like are you kidding me like these people don't even know how to use tiktok yet like how can they be (laughs) purchasing TikTok or sorry, AI services or coding anything at this point, um, they haven't optimized their film for the native environment where all their customers are right now. You know, like so, I, 
there's a long way to go. I would, I'm, I'm watching not, not with schadenfreude, but like, like a little bit of uh, gritting of my teeth for the first brand. That's just going to like crash and burn in this space because it is empathy required. Lots of it. I want to go back just as we close. Yeah. Um, on your advice for somebody who is embarking on a journey that you undertook three years ago. And I think, I can't remember what you talked, you talk, I think maybe I'm putting words in your mouth, but this idea of a reset or the sort of this idea of, of working out a, a moment of time to sort of work out what you are ultimately going to do. And I wondered if you, that would be a good sort of piece of advice. Of like, because one thing, one thing I'm, I'm sort of seeing, and I, and I wrote a piece about this, was this idea that you're going to be doing the same thing that you were doing before. You just not working for someone is a misguided principle, right? Yes. That, that you're not going to succeed. And, you know, as we talked about a lot, a lot of what our conversation has been about, you carving out a space in a place mm -hmm. that you can have some domain expertise in and be distinctive versus just another strategist for hire. I can do focus groups. I can do, you know, yeah. <laughs> the process it seems like there's a bit of a, a little bit of a introspective analysis that you have to do yeah. before you get there. What, so, what would your advice be? Someone starting out Jan 1, 2024, what should they be spending the first couple of months thinking about? Yeah. Like if I was a young person coming out of college or maybe a couple of years into the industry space and I was, <clears throat> trying to ch plot my chart forward, um, chart a course. I I would, I guess, you know, with my 2020 hindsight, I would, and a little bit of foresight, <clears throat> I would think about what are the, <clears throat> excuse me, what are the, the experiences that I want to get over the next five years that are going to be my sharpest tools in my toolkit? And you can imagine what some of those things might be. Probably um knowing how to be conversant in the language of ai prompting what does that mean how does that work you know being being sufficiently up to speed and tracking in the ai space um understanding how brands are constructed today versus how they were constructed 10 years ago 20 years ago 30 years ago you can chart multiple phases of uh, of how brands came to be and how they were maintained and evolved. And you can see spikes in that timeline of when certain brands kind of challenged the status quo and then there was like a bit of a revolution or evolution that everybody took together. I would advise just kind of getting familiar with that macro view. I'm a huge believer of kind of this looking back to look forward idea and there's a lot to be gained um i think there's i mean this the whole idea about what kind of strategist are you like i think if you are a strategist it means you like to really think about the puzzle and that you have the language ability to communicate to makers and those makers could be a software engineer that maker could be um a copywriter or a visual designer or someone who works in the digital medium. And all of those different mediums have some norms and some semiotics attached to them. Uh, if you're at the beginning of your journey, I'd spend some time really getting familiar at, at least the base layer 
so that you can think horizontally through of them all. Because if you're going to be creating um, positioning or um, even if it's a campaign platform that you know has to traverse this ecosystem of all these different kinds of things, you need to have confidence at the very beginning before you even put the brief into any of your creative makers, like that it can flow through there. You have to kind of be able to sense test a lot of that stuff yourself. So that's kind of like makerspace. That's that's a creative expression zone. And then I would challenge anybody to do their best uh, to swim upstream a little bit and figure out when we, when we at the agency get a brief, where is it coming from inside the entity of the brand? Is it coming from an advertising department? Is it coming from a brand leader? And you know, if it's coming from a startup or a smaller company, it might be coming from the CEO. What what are their concerns and their constraints? What what does victory look like to them so that you're not just receiving the brief as gospel, but that you know how to interrogate it and you can start to see holes in it. And you can even start to see ways in which you can imbue into that work and into that brief something that they didn't know how to put there themselves that will actually send value upstream and downstream through that process. You know, you're pushing some value back in. Um, and then I can say what I did, you know, when, when I left Nike and I started to go out on my own, I was excited, but I was also nervous because I'd never done it before. And it was also a pandemic. And so I wasn't really sure, like, is this a good time to do this? I don't know. Let's go find out. Let's go find out. So I, I had dual pathways. One was giving myself a whole year of experimentation. Take a bunch of different kinds of briefs I can think of. Pitch all kinds of things to people. Um, you can hire me for office hours. I can come and talk to your team. Oh, you just had a layoff. Oh, okay. Do you need some senior mentorship for your youngsters? You can hire me to come be that person. Give one of those guys a big project and I'll, I'll mentor them through that. You know, there's like, I just was figuring out what are all the ways in which I can help people because people need a lot of different help right now. And it was a really eclectic time to hedge my bets. I also continued interviewing. <laughs> and part of that was <clears throat> I need to figure out if I can make a a better job for myself than I can actually find on the market. So my goal on one end was to experiment the hell out of things, figure out if I can build for myself thing I, I never had before and couldn't find anywhere else. And then also keep staying with one foot in the market to see what else was out there, what was on offer, what were people willing to not just pay me, but what sort of responsibilities were there, were they let, willing to let me handle and hold? And I did end up getting a couple of job offers, but along the way, I just, I turned them down because at each moment they arrived, I was like, is it better than what I've built for myself? And the answer was no. And then I'm like, well, I'm going to keep going then, you know, in, in case something comes along, that's just got something that I can't give myself. There's no reason for me to stop doing this because it feels really good. And, and I'm getting a chance to be really fluid and horizontally. And I guess that's the last thing I would leave people with. The conversation around strategist this or strategist that tries to put us into buckets. And sometimes it's required. There is a brief. It is a media-focused brief. We need a media strategist. <laughs> we'll stop. Or this is a this is a content strategist that we need. We're, we have a lot of stories to tell. We need to figure out how many, how to plot them over time, which are the big ones, which are the little ones, what are the you know shoots and ladders that we can do to connect them to each other so they add up to something. Is there an editorial calendar here? We need a content strategist. Fair enough. But 
I challenge every strategist to look for all the ways in which they can be horizontal too. Because the more you understand about the ecosystem, the more you understand about the way your work impacts the other parts of the ecosystem, allows you to create something that will live longer. I mean, we were talking about apps and stuff like that and AI. And I'm I'm in a position right now where my advice to a lot of my clients is to build as light and as simple and as soulful as possible. And invest in an app if you're literally investing in an app. And by investment, I mean not just dollars, but like you're thinking about what it's going to be doing over the next five to 10 years. You've got people who are in an org that sit on top of that product because it's a product once it's out there and it's interacting with your most valuable customer. This is like an LTV thing. Like this creates all the stickiness and you're going to maybe fund it a little bit with some extra cash once a quarter. No, no, no. Like (laughs) if you build it, they will come and you need to care. So don't do it unless you're going to do it for the long term. Otherwise, there's so many little light things you can do that are simple, that are soulful, that are just like a little injection of dopamine at different parts of the ecosystem. And they are sometimes the reaction is outsized to what you can get from an app that is quite heavy and robust. So yeah, those will be my little bites, I guess, at the end of the, the end of the conversation today. <laughs> Thank you so much. I am going to uh, stop.